Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint, and I wrote this poem last year, and I shared it on the pod, but it's been making the rounds again these days with everything going on. Um, and so I thought that I might uh, share it with you all again in case it speaks to anybody who may be feeling the same way. When people say we have made it through worse before, all I hear is the wind slapping against the gravestones of those who did not make it, those who did not survive to see the confetti fall from the sky, those who did not live to watch the parade roll down the street. I've grown accustomed to a lifetime of aphorisms meant to assuage my fears. Pithy sayings meant to convey that everything ends up fine in the end. There is no solace in rearranging language to make a different word tell the same lie. Sometimes the moral arc of the universe does not bend in a direction that will comfort us. Sometimes it bends in ways we don't expect, and there are people who fall off in the process. Please, dear reader, do not say that I am hopeless. I believe there is a better future to fight for. I simply accept the possibility that I may not live to see it. I have grown weary of telling myself lies that I might one day begin to believe. We are not all left standing after the war has ended. Some of us have become ghosts by the time the dust has settled. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. And then I have the incredible honor to again sit down with the legendary representative Maxine Waters to get the inside story and everything that's gone right and everything that's gone wrong in D.C. at this moment. Now, for the foreseeable future, because we're all at home, the interviews will be conducted over the telephone. So I just want you to know that you'll hear a little bit of telephone-ish with our guests and we will make it as crystal clear as possible. Now, my advice for this week is to remember that while we're home, we're still a part of a community. That while we're home, we're still connected to people. While we're home, we are not just individuals. We are part of a collective. We can do this. Let's do it. Hey, y'all. Still from inside our homes, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Pack Yeti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Dre at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. Listen, I don't care what is going on in the world. An I, an I, and an I, hearing it that way will just always bring me joy. So before we dive into the news, I need to know from you all if you have had any conversations that have gone a little something like this. Me, 35, on the phone with my mother, who is not 35. And uh, I'm finding myself saying things to her (laughs) that she might have said to me once upon a time, like, Gwen, it's time to go back in the house. Gwen, what you need to go outside for? Gwen, leave where you are and come home right now. (laughs) We are not quarantined together. We are 800 miles apart. But what I will tell you is that we switched places this week because I was like, Mom, this is serious. I need you to take you and your compromised age into the house. If you need me to send you groceries, I will send you groceries. If you need me to send you instructions on how to handle this coronavirus, I will send it to you. But please get out the pew, get out the store, get out 
the neighborhood and go into the house. I don't know if I'm the only one who had this change of uh, role experience this week because I had to yell at my mom. You're definitely not the only one because I can tell you, so my parents are in Florida and you may have watched the news, but Florida is now one of the epicenters of this crisis in part because of all of these spring breakers who are just spreading the virus, catching the virus, going back home. It's a mess. So that's what I'm seeing on the news. Then I call my dad, who's also up there in age, and I'm like, okay, like, how are you managing? Are you okay? And he's like, yeah, you know, people are really going crazy. I was out at Walmart today, and people are buying all these towels and stuff, paper towels and toilet paper. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Why are you at Walmart? Like, you need to stay home. Gotta stay home. This is actually serious. It's especially serious if you are older, just had a surgery, like you need to stay at home. And he's like, well, you know, we're not afraid. I'm like, it's not about being afraid. It's like you actually need to be safe and like no amount of courage is going to save you from a virus. Like it really doesn't care how courageous you're feeling. It's going to do what it's going to do. So it's a huge thing. Like I'm worried and I hope uh, more folks will stay home and be safe, self-quarantine so we can ultimately all get outside one day. So luckily, uh, my parents are taking it very seriously. My dad has had two kidney transplants. He has chronic kidney disease, very immunocompromised. I'm very grateful that he's taking it very seriously. My mom is taking it seriously. I don't know if they interact with anybody at this point. I'm very grateful that I haven't had to convince them not to do that. Um, my grandfather, it's a different kind of story. He's he's 90 years old. He's still driving to the bank in the grocery store. And the family group chat was like, granddaddy's still driving to the bank. And I had to get on FaceTime with the kids, with my, you know, two-year-old and my one-year-old and say, you know, granddaddy, we're so excited to see you soon at some point, hopefully, but you got to make sure that you are staying at home and washing your hands and like not going to the bank and the grocery store and the post office and all of these things that you were doing. And so, you know, I had to get the, the little kids puppy faces on there. And I've been told that he has scaled back his his actions after that. So if you need to to get your older relatives to come back, just guilt them with your your small children if you have them. I uh, call my father and I'm like, hey, daddy, what's up? And he's like, oh, like, I'm just chilling. I'm like, well, how are those groceries going? He's like, Dre, I got a lot of seafood. I'm like, well, what about everything else? And he's like, I just need seafood, right? This is just the news being dramatic. <laughs> I love your dad. So he goes before it gets wild. And then we talk later. He's like, I'm happy I went to the store. This is bad. I'm like, Daddy, I told you it was bad. Like, you are, it's been really interesting to see the way that that generation who, you know, scolded us for everything, you know, make sure you got on two layers outside. Did you remember to put a hat on when you did this? This is the pandemic of our lifetime, and uh, they just didn't get it. So I hope these people get it together. I will say that my mom, the only reason why she actually was around people and I had to give her a stern talking to of the likes that I received, you know, a couple years ago in my life was because she felt responsible to help folks who were still coming to church. And I think one of the really hard things right now about religious institutions is that so often religious institutions are there to step in where people can't access social services. And still, the church is home often to 
the most vulnerable populations, the most elderly, the most disenfranchised, the most immunocompromised. And so I'm, I'm glad to see that this week, unlike last week, lots more churches have gone completely virtual. We streamed already last week. And, you know, as a person of faith, I believe I serve a big God, which means that you can be big in a sanctuary or through an Ethernet cord. Um, and so I'm glad to see that there were better choices made by churches this week because there were some churches that were uh, really uh, struggling with the decision. That said, I saw somebody today on Twitter saying like, oh, well, I see they're still collecting these ties. And the hard part is if somebody's house burns down or a family is hungry or folks need access to a food bank, often these are coming from churches. Um, and so I'm interested to see what the kind of policy conversation that happens for religious institutions that also provide social services, because um, that's really the only reason why my mom found herself a around people last week, and there needs to be some real solutions. But I'm glad we all got our parents in line and our grandparents in line, told them to have a seat. Uh, We probably all felt a little big in our britches because we got to have that conversation and (laughs) pay them back a little bit for the the tough conversations they had to have with us coming up. But uh, I'm glad everybody's good, and I'm glad everybody's staying safe and healthy. And now, the news. So for people who are experiencing domestic violence, uh, mandatory lockdowns that are meant to curb the spread of COVID-19 have really trapped a lot of folks inside of their homes with their abusers and isolated them from people and the resources that could help them. We see from Europe to Asia, millions of people have been placed under lockdown, as we've seen. And something that the deputy executive director of the United Nations Women said uh, that I thought was really interesting was She said the very technique we are using to protect people from the virus can perversely impact victims of domestic violence, adding that while we absolutely support the need to follow these measures of social distancing and isolation, we also recognize that it provides an opportunity for abusers to unleash more violence. What we know is that one out of every three women in the world experience physical or sexual violence over the course of their lifetime, making it the most widespread but among the least reported human rights abuses in the world. Men also, you know, there's men who also experience domestic violence, but women make up the vast majority of victims with LGBTQ individuals also facing a higher risk of domestic violence in their homes. During times of crisis, such as natural disasters, wars, epidemics, the risk of gender-based violence escalates significantly. In China, what we saw is that the number of domestic violence cases reported to the local police tripled in the month of February compared to the previous year. That is directly correlated to the enforced lockdown that happened in China when this virus was was just beginning to spread. The current crisis also makes it more difficult for victims to find help. As medical facilities around the world scramble to respond to coronavirus, uh, as medical facilities around the world scramble to respond to coronavirus, health systems are becoming overloaded, as we're seeing and hearing, uh, making it more difficult for victims of domestic violence to get access to medical care and therapists. Because part of what we're seeing is that a lot of non-emergency medical services are being pushed aside or postponed because there is such an urgent need to focus singularly on emergency and ICU and making sure there are enough beds and ventilators and protective equipment for the medical professionals. For many women, even the fear of contracting the coronavirus has stopped them from seeking out medical care after experiencing physical abuse. Uh, Many victims say they can no longer seek refuge at their parents' homes for they fear they could expose their elderly parents to the virus. For some, travel restrictions may limit their ability to stay with loved ones who otherwise would have provided a sanctuary. And women's shelters may even become overcrowded during this time or may close their doors if we get to that point if the risk of infection becomes too high. And so I just wanted to bring this up because it is but one of countless examples of the way that coronavirus 
is already and is going to continue to impact really harmful social phenomenon that already exist in the world and is going to exacerbate some of the most concerning things that are happening today. I should also say that if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, you should contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline via text or phone call at 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-7233. So Clint, that statistic that you mentioned, one in three women experiencing domestic violence uh, in their lifetimes is just a wild statistic. And just thinking about the scale at which this crisis is affecting folks and will affect folks as more states and cities go on lockdown um, and more people are at home for longer periods of time. It requires governments help from shelters, help from so many folks to step in and provide support and shelter for folks who are experiencing this. And unfortunately, in, in some states, what we're seeing, like in Ohio, is that instead of providing support, particularly for women, they're actually using this coronavirus crisis as an opportunity to advance a right-wing agenda that actually targets women and uh, women's reproductive rights. So for example, in Ohio, the Attorney General Dave Yost just recently ordered abortion clinics to close in the state, labeling them non-essential elective procedures rather than essential procedures. This has, of course, created quite a controversy in Ohio as abortion clinics and uh, progressive groups have fought back, making the true point that, in fact, um, these are not elective or non-essential procedures, that actually being able to access reproductive health care and an abortion is actually quite essential. This is not the only example of Republican legislators and officials in states now, instead of helping folks, using this as an opportunity to actually double down on policies that have taken away critical services, healthcare services, and reproductive services, as well as other policies that that have been proposed from Republicans across the state that would actually make the situation worse. These are two really critically important pieces of news from both of you all. And I have to say that as someone who identifies as a woman, it is incredibly refreshing to be in community, both work and friendship, with men who understand the importance of these issues and doesn't see them as tangential. Because in all of the ways that we talk about empowering women and creating equity for women being something that benefits everybody, women-owned enterprise benefiting an entire community, women in leadership benefiting entire areas, as much as we encourage that kind of activity for the benefit of all people, there are also just some things that are about women and marginalized people and vulnerable people just being able to protect themselves and make choices for themselves that shouldn't have to result in a benefit for anybody else to to be taken seriously. And I appreciate that you all show up and do that every single day and give other people a snapshot into what it means to hold feminist and womanist values as somebody who does not identify as a woman. I think it is so critically important to not forget domestic violence uh, networks and shelters as we are deciding to be neighbors who help neighbors during this public health crisis. When we did Giving Spree last week, it all kind of started because I literally just wanted to see the donations that Reggie and I were about to make go further, got on Twitter and said, here's how much we were going to give. If people give to this amount, we'll match it. We gave $1,500 in matching funds within 
20 minutes, actually, people gave that and more. And over the days that we did more and more of that, because people were donating more matching funds, it occurred to us, actually it was shared with us, that we need to not only be encouraging people to donate to food banks and to homeless shelters, which are essential right now, and will also be bursting at the seams um, in terms of the demand, but to also and always include domestic violence networks and shelters in there. Look, home is not a safe place for everyone to quarantine. This is part of the reason why when we focused our giving on homeless shelters, I wanted to also direct people's energy to LGBTQ homeless shelters because there are so many young people who just for being who they are, are subject to abuse and neglect in their households as well. And so I'm just really grateful to you all for continuously bringing these issues up, for not having to feel like even though I'm the only woman on the podcast that if I don't bring these kinds of things up, nobody will bring them up. It really really is a blessing to be a part of that. And I think such an important example to other people about how they should be spending their energy. So one of the things that this made me think about, and there's been a lot of good public conversation about domestic abuse and a lot of good conversation now happening around the way that the Republicans have been using this crisis to continue their assault on the rights of women. One of the things that has gone underreported when we think about abuse has been about child abuse. So in America, about five children die every day because of child abuse. One out of three girls and one out of five boys will be sexually abused before they reach 18. And 90% of child sexual abuse victims know the perpetrator in some way. And about 70% are abused by a family member. And that matters because the experts are predicting that as the stay-home orders go into effect across the country, that there's this anticipation that child abuse will rise. So we see already the Cook Children's Healthcare System in Texas. Uh, they saw a sudden spike in severe child abuse cases just in the past week, six children under the age of four, which they suspect was linked to the stress from the pandemic. The other thing that people don't remember is that teachers and school staff are mandated reporters. So me, Clinton, Brittany all worked in schools and you know you had that mandated reporter training that if you saw a kid being bruised or if you thought a kid might have been hurt at home, you had to report it. It was your obligation to report it. And if you didn't report it, you could be held responsible for not reporting it. There's this whole realm of people who used to see kids every day and who would look and see if anything was wrong. And those eyes are suddenly gone. So this question from the child abuse advocate space is what happens when these problems go unnoticed and there's no timeline for how long we're going to stay home? So it's interesting to think about that. And the third thing about child abuse that also was interesting when I started to do more research is that the agencies that manage child abuse in cities across the country, they do home visits. And the question now becomes, how do you do a home visit when we are supposed to be visiting people's homes? So they are really struggling with this question right now because on the one hand, they know that a video visit doesn't give you a great sense of what's happening in the home. You can't really see the fear on a child's face if they're getting beat or neglected. You can't see the living conditions because the person gets to control the camera. But they are also worried about either spreading uh, COVID or contracting COVID. So there's a big provider in New York City uh, who has gotten permission to do video visits in some low-risk circumstances, but is still going to do home visits. And it is this sort of interesting thing about government contracts, that a lot of these providers, if they don't do home visits, then they might lose the contract. So there's like this weird tension around public safety and like their long-term ability to be able to do this work. Don't go anywhere. More Politics of the People is coming. 
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. With BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. So for my news, um, I want to continue to shine a light on the things that are happening behind the scenes in this administration that we talk about all the time and try to highlight so that we remain vigilant about them and are not tricked into thinking that nefarious things aren't happening when in fact they are. This week, we've seen a decrease in Donald Trump's disapproval ratings. People are mostly attributing that to what I think everyone would characterize as a very late response to the coronavirus. Um, There are folks that have found themselves more pleased with his response as of late that he has been showing himself at least sometimes to take these things more seriously. That is an open question. But no matter, last week he was talking about the necessity of universal basic income in a manner of words. And a lot of people were celebrating him for that, including folks on the left, people who absolutely do not agree with Donald Trump on literally anything, were finding themselves saying, politics aside, I think that this is an important piece of rhetoric, that this is an important message, and they supported it. 
And look, I believe that there should be a universal basic income and a living wage that everyone has access to no matter the time and space, but especially during a time of pandemic and a global health crisis when people are finding themselves in need of sustenance and support from their government and their neighbors. But I think that it is critically important that we always remember not to look at what Donald Trump says, but always to pay attention to what he does. We know that he will say one thing and do another. In fact, that seems to be part of the strategy of this White House, to be a magician and distract you with what the left hand is doing while he goes and does something terrible with the right. And that is, in fact, exactly what is happening here. Because while out of his mouth, he is talking about things like universal basic income and people being able to have access to food and nutritious things that they need to survive during this pandemic, what has been happening behind the scenes is that the USDA of Donald Trump's administration has been fighting to continue to purge food stamps from recipients, even though there is a global pandemic happening. We talked to you about this before, that this administration has been trying to cut over 700,000 people from Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, which is what we commonly call food stamps. We talked about this far before the pandemic had started, and you would think that somewhere in the recesses of human compassion, that Donald Trump would put at least a pause on that while this was happening in a pandemic. This effort is cruel anyway, but it is especially cruel during a pandemic, and sure enough, they have not stop the efforts. As a reminder, these approximately 700,000 folks will be kicked off the food stamp rolls because of a new work requirement. The work requirement and time limit essentially requires folks to show that they've worked at least 80 hours a month in more than three months in a 36-hour period in order to remain on the program. But during a time when unemployment is through the roof because of this pandemic and people are being laid off left and right because businesses cannot sustain this, it is impossible to show that you can work 80 hours for more than three months in a 36-month period. There was a waiver that once upon a time states were allowed to use to protect particularly vulnerable communities from that work requirement. What the USDA and the Trump administration has been doing is essentially working to strip states of their ability to have that waiver. So there are a set of governors who made the appeal and who filed suit against the USDA. And thanks to a federal judge in a ruling two weeks ago, that judge stopped those waivers from being stripped from states governments. But the fight continues, and the USDA under Trump is continuing to appeal this. We have to pay attention not to what he says, but to what he does. Because what he says is that he wants all of us to be well and to be fed. And what he does is the exact opposite. And here we are in the middle of a global pandemic and having to continue to fight the fights of marginalized people everywhere. What is interesting about this is that they've been pushing for a judge ruled against it and they just said they disagreed as Brittany helped us understand. But it's sort of wild that in this moment that they are still going to fight this. By the time you hear this recording, it is going to be past a million people asking for unemployment. It's already surpassed that in the past couple of days. There'll be people who have never, ever participated in government assistance who will be participating. I was just talking to a former college president yesterday, and he said that he's working with colleges and universities who might never recover from this. There are a set of colleges that are tuition dependent and have no resources. I can think of some businesses, some restaurants, some mom and pop shops that are also running at a really tight margin and being closed for two, three, four months 
one month even, even if they do get a loan from the federal government, the business itself might actually just dry up. You think about the impact of what this will do on the creative community, people who uh, have relied on a service-based economy around their intellectual property and what happens when people just have no disposable income. In this moment, there's a narrative that gets challenged because for so many people, when it's black and brown people, it is this idea that you chose poverty. You made a set of decisions that made you need food stamps. You did something wrong that required you to get public housing because you just didn't get it together. You are homeless because you didn't care enough about going to work. And what you will find in this moment is that there'll be a set of people who never believed in government assistance, who will need it to survive. And it will be a stark reminder for all of us that poverty chooses people, people don't choose poverty, that it is a set of conditions that always lead people into these circumstances. And it's not because people at the individual level made a set of bad choices. This is about a system and structure. So when I think about Trump continuing to fight against food stamps, I also am worried because when you look at the numbers, a lot of his base still is like supporting him. And you're like, You are all going to be screwed over in this process. As of today, we're recording this on Sunday. There are five senators who are quarantined. So both uh, leadership delegations are not letting virtual votes in Congress. So the Republicans don't have the numbers of votes they need to just force things through in this moment. So maybe we get some real benefits for people. But it's sort of wild to just watch this happen. And the last thing I'll say is that we've been working on a COVID-related thing And I needed to look up a government site. I needed to look up this resource database in one of the health and human services sites. And I look at it and I realize that the Trump administration just defunded the office that manages the database. It's around public health. So it's like the links don't work. The information's not updated. So we had to recreate it on the back end. But you're like, you really decimated the federal government. So uh, shout out to Cuomo's press conferences. Cuomo's not great on some of the criminal justice stuff. He has been uh, fine on these press conferences. And it really has been a lot of governors and mayors who've been managing the message, not Trump. So my news is one of the things I was fascinated by was about smart thermometers. So there is a company, uh, Kenza. Kenza is a smart thermometer and they know the temperature data at the aggregate at the national level. And they have actually been the best predictors of where the outbreaks of coronavirus are happening because they can see spikes in fevers across the country. And I thought this was a fascinating way to think about how tech can actually help us in a way the CDC certainly isn't. The CDC numbers every day aren't even right. Hopkins has the most accurate count of uh, new cases and deaths across the country. But Kenza has actually also launched a public map right now so you can actually see the real-time clusters. There are some places in Florida where their their data showed that there was a spike in flus happening. They preceded what public health officials later realized was an outbreak of coronavirus. So I thought this was fascinating and a, a really interesting way about how we can use tech. The Kenza thermometers are back order for four weeks. So that is not very exciting for people, but it is a really cool way to think about tech. Yeah, I'll just say there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of data, a lot of charts, a lot of epidemiologists and economists and statisticians on the internet who are putting out a lot of stuff. Some of it in conversation with one another, some of them in tension with one another. But something that I think is important to remember as we move into this next phase of this is that to some extent, from what I understand, we should not be singularly or overly concerned with the number of cases that are being detected, just because in the, in some sense, for example, in New York, far more tests are being done 
than were being done a week ago, two weeks ago. Uh, I think Cuomo said at his press conference they were doing more tests per day now than South Korea was and, and China and some of the places that were emblematic of like what it meant to test Unmasked. And so the numbers are going to continue to skyrocket in New York and elsewhere. And part of what that reflects is that we have more testing to catch cases that have been there for days or been there for weeks. But what I'm reading in, from some different epidemiologists is that what's going to be most helpful is understanding the, the mortality rate. That is going to be what gives us a sense of the best information of where we are. When the doubling time of death rates gets above three days, we will have begun to get past the runaway period of this pandemic. And so I'm certainly not an epidemiologist. I'm trying to you know, find folks that can say this in layman's terms and in ways that I can understand. But it is interesting because there are some places that have more capacity for testing and are saying, let's test, test, test. And there are other places that are only testing the medical workers or people who are most ill because they don't have the capacity for testing. So I think all of this, you know, DeRay, your news are really interesting because the reason we found ourselves in this position in the first place is because we didn't have the adequate capacity to understand like where this was happening and who it was happening to. And now a lot of folks are saying that we're past the point at which testing is not pointless, but that it is secondary relative to some of the other concerns. Stay safe, stay away from people, and stay inside. The data that we have is incomplete. Uh, it's incomplete in large part because there just hasn't been the scale of testing, you know, in the beginning of this crisis that would allow us to accurately track how things are progressing over time. Instead, you know, the numbers are going up as testing is going up, but not necessarily reflecting sort of the number of cases overall, many of which still remain undetected. So it's been fascinating from a data perspective to see how folks who are public health professionals, folks who are researchers are beginning to sort of develop proxy measures for coronavirus in the absence of sufficient testing. So for example, data on fevers, data on pneumonia intake in hospitals, data on mortality rate, how many folks are dying from flu-related symptoms, pneumonia-related symptoms. And as that data is starting to come in, we're starting to see the real impacts of some of the policies that have been adopted to promote physical distancing or uh, lockdowns in particular places and how that differs from places that have not implemented strict measures to address coronavirus. So for example, data looking at San Francisco County and Miami-Dade County um, that's just been released the data shows that Miami-Dade County, when you're looking at abnormal fevers as an indicator, uh, Miami-Dade County has actually seen cases spike at a rate much higher than San Francisco County after San Francisco County adopted measures that required folks to work from home, restrictions on public gatherings, and other measures that have actually looked to act, have made an impact in reducing the rate of the spread over time. Similarly, there's some data that's just coming out looking at Kentucky and Tennessee Tennessee, which hasn't really moved quickly enough to implement restrictions on uh, social gatherings and closing schools, whereas Kentucky actually moved much quicker. And you can see the number of confirmed coronavirus cases in Kentucky is much lower. Uh, the rate of increase is much lower than what we see in Tennessee. So already, you know, not only are we seeing it at sort of the nation level when you compare different countries and how they've responded and how that impacts the rate of coronavirus cases over time, but we're even seeing this within the United States, uh, where depending on which city or county you're living in or which state you're living in, this pandemic is going to look much different down the road uh, because of the policy decisions that are being made right now and some of the policy decisions that should have been made weeks ago. And that's the news. Remember to stay healthy, stay safe, 
keep your distance. Certainly stream pod save the people. And if you or anyone you know is dealing with issues of domestic violence or abuse in their home, please do call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. There are more than 200 languages on the call. All calls are free and confidential. And if you are looking to help anyone that you know, help them make a safety plan. Thanks for listening, y'all. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian. Those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. And now my conversation with Representative Maxine Waters, who is currently serving her 15th term in the House. She's the most senior Black woman in Congress, and we had a conversation to discuss the pandemic, Washington's partisan bickering, and to talk about her proposal that is the best proposal happening right now. Representative Waters, thanks so much for being back on Pod Save the People. Can you help us understand what is going on right now? Well, I think it's not easy to be understood. I mean, we know the basic information uh, that we have this virus, coronavirus, and um, started in China, and it is spread all over the world, and that we hit the United States, and guess what? We were not ready. We had no planning. The Office of Pandemic Affairs, I suppose it was, in the president's office had been cut out of the budget by this president. That's what that office was all about, planning for disaster. And so now we have hospitals, clinics without gloves, without masks, running out of gowns, on and on and on. And then the testing situation is a scandal. 
Uh, we were not able to test people. We're still not up to par. Uh, we were not manufacturing the tests, and they just got the private sector involved who said they could do that in the last week or so. And so it's crazy. It's wild. But, you know, we have some leaders, like Governor Newsom is doing a great job. You know, he is uh, stepping up to the plate. He is not worried about the controversy. He's trying to save lives. And so he's announced a lockdown and uh, bars have to close down, asking people just to stay home and only go out for necessities. And we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to listen to the experts so that we can save lives and we can get out of this pandemic in the very near future. So it's crazy. It's wild. It's disruptive. And a lot of people are going to be harmed financially. And I just hope that we don't have a lot more deaths. I'm curious, how does voting work in Congress when something like this is happening? Are you are you all still sort of coming in day to day? Is it on break or can you vote virtually? Like, how does that even work? Well, we're on break. And fortunately, uh, we were vote up until a week ago last Saturday. Uh, but it was past the time when we should be gathering in the way that we gathered on the floor. We have two members of Congress who are infected. And we have some members who are self-quarantined. And uh, we don't know how we're going to take the next vote to pass these packages that we're putting together to try and help everybody in this economy. And so the Constitution says in order to vote, we have to be present and we have to be on the floor. But, of course, common sense and the health experts and everybody tell us that we cannot gather in large numbers because that's how you transmit uh, the virus. And again, knowing that we've had members who are infected, who were on the floor, we're lucky to be out of there with not more people being infected. And so we don't know. We're trying to figure out how to get these packages voted on. There's nothing in the Constitution could not have been anticipated about voting, you know, distance electronically and all of that. So we have some people working on what we can do and how to do it. But we don't need to get on the planes. We don't need to get on the airplanes. For those of us who may have underlying health problems or have age and all, we're more vulnerable. And so we're trying to figure out how to help the people and how to stay alive. As the chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, you put together a proposal that uh, so many people, including myself, consider to be progressive and really bold, calling for giving households $2,000 uh, and $1,000 for children for each month of the pandemic. Can you talk about that proposal? It's more than that, but that is one of the, the pieces that really stuck out to me and so many people. How did you get to that proposal? Do you think that this will pass? What can you tell us about that? Well, you're absolutely right. I worked with the members of the Financial Services Committee and a very good, strong staff. And what we decided to do was to step outside of the box and recognize that we really have not dealt with poverty in this country. And many people find themselves in a position where they earn very little money to begin with. Uh, they're barely able to pay their rent. And they're trying to make payments maybe on a car so they can get back and forth to work, and they're going to lose their jobs. They're going to be fired or they're going to be laid off, and what's going to happen to them? And so 
I think that we have a responsibility to see that they can put food on the table. And so I came up with the proposal, and there are others who support it, not everybody, who say this is the right thing to do. This is what we can afford to do. And so this is high on my agenda, to see to it that we get cash in the hands of families so that they can feed their children. And further, we want to help them so that they don't get evicted if they can't pay the rent. Uh, We want to help them uh, that they won't get a bad credit rating if they can't pay uh, their bills. We want to help them if they have a mortgage uh, to get the banks to defer those payments and they can work them out so that uh, they can put them on the end of the mortgage and people can not have to worry about it maybe for a few months because they're not able to do that. Uh, We want to make sure that whether we're talking about mortgages or credit cards or other kinds of debts, that we give support to people and that we create a facility to backfill and to pay landlords and other creditors uh, who we're asking uh, to do this. And we have a lot of money over in uh, the Fed, and the Fed is about monetary policy, and they don't see themselves involved in fiscal policy. And beside the fact that they can buy up treasuries uh, and they can buy commercial paper and all of that, they don't see that they're able uh, to pull cash out and direct it directly to families. We disagree with them. Uh, we believe they have the authority to do it. Uh, we're going to fight them, and we're going to do everything we can to get this money into the hands of people and to give them some semblance of security uh, with the way that we're trying to protect them, again, from the debt and the other problems that they could run into because they don't have the money to pay these bills. So that's part of what you see in that proposal. We're trying to protect families and children, and we're trying to make sure that people are not put out on the street and they just have a decent quality of life while we go through this. We saw the federal government pass a bill around the coronavirus a week ago, and then they saw your memo. What's the difference between the bill that already passed that Trump signed and what you're proposing? Are you proposing the next step in what we do, or is this part of the same package? How do we explain that to people? We actually have three packages, and the House and the Senate have now passed out two. This is the third one, and this is the one that I'm trying to interject Uh, this progressive actions into and this third package to make sure that I do a lot that wasn't done in the first two packages or even support more of the good things that were in those packages in a better way. And so we're working on this right now, having problems with the Senate, but we're pushing as hard as we can. We're saying that this is what ought to be done. This is a plan that can work. And we're pushing it as hard as we can. I wish people would get on the Internet. I wish people would get on all of our social media and stand up for the plan and try and get all of the members of Congress to understand we can do this. It can be done. One of the things that I want to talk to you about that's in your plan is that you ask for no federal rulemaking during the crisis. Federal financial regulators will be prohibited from adopting rules not directly related to responding to the coronavirus for the length of the crisis. What does that mean to the average voter? Even to me, I'm like, what? What does? Why is that important? Why is that one of the things you call out in this? I call this out because right now, for example, we're dealing with CRA and CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act. Uh, that is supposed to guarantee that banks are putting money into the communities 
that they're supposed to serve, they're coming up with what they call a modernization plan that's really going to undermine the mission of what CRA is supposed to do. And they're trying to be able to lend money all out into other states and every place. That's not what CRA is all about. They're in the rulemaking part of all of this. When we pass a law, for example, laws are basically very complicated. And then you've got to develop rules in order to implement them. And so our regulators sometimes are trying to do something that may be a bit different from what we have in the legislation, or uh, they're trying to support legislation that's really bad that got out. And so we're saying, stop it. No rulemaking, no putting together opinions that you solicit from the public at this time. Let that go. We don't need to get into that right now. So that's what that's all about. And you know, there are those who will try to use this as a time to do deregulation. We've been fighting deregulation. That's what the Dodd-Frank reforms were all about for the banks, to make sure that they have enough capital and all of that to withstand these kinds of disasters. So we don't want them doing any rulemaking, and we're going to fight against any deregulation that they may come forward with at this time in order, again, to not use this as a time where you disadvantage rather than support. Got it. And one of the things, too, that, you know, so many people called out and I'm happy I get to talk to you about is the suspending rental and utility payments for assistant renters. Uh, can you talk about who this covers? Like, what would, would this be for everybody renting in the country? Would this be for people just in federally owned buildings? Like, what, what does that actually mean? No, we have both. Uh, and we're working on the details of that. But for the federally owned buildings, that we can do. Uh, we can do it Absolutely. For those people who need it, and we haven't set up all the criteria for that, we are working on how we pay the landlords so that they can't tell us, no, I've got to evict these people. I can't pay my mortgage unless they're paying me. And so we're working on setting up what is known as a facility to pay the landlords so that they will not evict others. We have not gotten into who qualifies for that. We simply know now that people in need, and that may mean some more defining. We also have cities who are doing that. The city of L.A. has come up with no eviction rules. And so a lot of this, you have to have details put to, but we're working as fast as we can. Is there anything that you can do for senior citizens who seem to be uh, disproportionately impacted by the medical complications of coronavirus? Yeah, we have a lot that we can do for senior citizens. First of all, we need to make sure that we expand Medicaid and we allow for telemedicine to take place with, uh, you know, people who receive Medicare and Medicaid. In addition to that, our senior citizen centers are providing food. Uh, we can do pass-throughs, some situations that we're setting up with seniors who go to uh, lunch programs every day is how they can drive through or have somebody drive through and pick up their uh, baby box lunches. We're doing similar to that with some of the schools. I've been working with all of the school districts in my 43rd district. I have eight school districts about how they're feeding our children and some of the same methods are being used to feed the seniors. And we have Meals on Wheels that still can deliver some food to people who are needy if they call. Uh, we have our food pantries 
And we have uh, the food banks that we're working with to make sure that they're helping our seniors. And our seniors are calling us and they're telling us uh, what their problems are and how they need help. We're getting food. They can't get to the grocery stores. Many of them tried. And when they went to the grocery stores, they literally uh, could not, you know, compete with those who were grabbing stuff off the shelves. And so the seniors are at risk and we're working with ways to get food to them in several ways. People, again, who go to the lunch programs, who are connected to the lunch programs, they will know exactly how to get their food. They have their telephone numbers. They have their email addresses. They will tell them how to drive through, how to pick up their box lunches. We have numbers that are floating out for Meals on Wheels in order to get more people involved who maybe not within that program. And we're exposing the telephone numbers of banks and food pantries. And, of course, with senior citizens, a lot of them belong to church. Some ministers are not sure. They want to have church Sundays. When the ministers called me, I said no. As a matter of fact, uh, you can set up prayer through conference calls. Uh, You can go on Facebook. There are many ways that you can stay in touch with your parishioners without having them gather into the church. The last thing you want are churches to be full beyond the limits that you have been advised about not, you know, having in terms of large numbers of people. And besides that, a lot of the church goers are old people. And so we don't need to put them at further risk. And we're doing everything we can to encourage ministers not to have regular church Sundays as they know it. Many are complying, but there are few who are just saying, well, God will take care of it. And they're doing it anyway. One of the things that you are calling for, in addition to the stimulus bill, is about Uh, The U.S. State Department assisting some citizens that are stranded in Morocco and maybe some other places. What should the government be doing? Well, the government should be getting our citizens out. Uh, We've been successful with Morocco. I had to really give the State Department a hard time. And I had to call on some other resources to help get the chartered flights out of there. They had been stranded. And today was the day uh, that the government was saying they were going to close it all down. The Moroccan government was not going to let anybody in or out. But we moved the State Department and the ambassador, working with uh, the airlines, uh, American Airlines and the British Airlines, uh, to start to get our people out. And so that is moving as of today. But I want you to know there are people stranded in other parts of the world. I know there's a big problem in Peru, for example, uh, but we have been able to move on the Moroccan issue and they're being charted flight out today. And one of the things you also said, and, you know, we all know that Trump is wild. You said, and I quote, I've worked in some of the toughest communities. I've worked with gangs. I've worked with the Crips. I work with the Bloods. And there's more integrity in many of these young people in the hood than this man has. Is Trump really as bad as we think he is? Yes, he is. And worse than you think he is. I mean, he has defined himself quite accurately. He is a man that cares about himself. He is a man that is prepared to do whatever he thinks he needs to do to win whatever he's trying to win. He's divisive. I mean, this is a guy who is standing up for the very right wing, for the KKK, for the white supremacists, and he's not ashamed about that. Uh, This is a man who will change his opinion on a dime. He started out with saying that the virus was a hoax and that it would disappear. And, of course, he's been hit very hard, and now he's trying to pretend like he never said that. And he's trying to show that he's doing some things that we're pushing him to do, and 
even that he's not doing right in some instances. So when you say, is he as bad as one may think he is? Absolutely. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And the statement that I made about many of the young people that I've worked with who are considered bad or troublesome, have more integrity than he's got, I mean that. And I won't back away from it. And two weeks ago, you called for the top people at Wells Fargo to resign. Is that still a priority for you, or has that taken a backseat? No, they've done it. Uh, the two board members that I asked to resign, they're out. We had this before our committee, and the day before they came, they knew uh, that we meant business. And so when they came into the committee, they had already issued their resignation. They're gone. Wells Fargo is the poster bank for what's wrong with banks in America. Uh, they have cheated their consumers. Uh, they've created accounts in their names that they didn't know about. They've uh, forced insurance on people that they didn't need. It is a culture that has been developed inside the bank that is causing harm, has caused harm, has ripped people off. And so, you know, I am focused on Wells Fargo. We have to chew gum and walk at the same time. We can do it all. This virus takes priority over everything. And we had him on the line today with all of the other banks. I wanted to know what were they doing to help our consumers? What were they doing to help them delay payment on their mortgages? What were they doing to lend money? What were they doing to help their employees and so, no, we're working on all of this, but no, I'm serious about Wells Fargo. And no, those uh, two board members who should have known what was going on, who sat there and watched what was going on, and even we discovered, we did one year's investigation. I had my staff of lawyers who were investigating, interviewing, getting information, and we saw where they were at fault, where they didn't pay attention, and while they kept on two CEOs that they knew were not managing that bank properly, and that uh, even one of them who was getting a big bonus on the way out, they just took that back, and they are bringing it back in. So we're making things happen. But as for the uh, resignations, those two board members are gone. And now you've been in Congress through some ups and downs. So you were there through the 2008 recession and the foreclosures that happened with that. Are there any lessons that we can take from that time and how the country bounced back that we should be doing right now? Yeah, these are two different kinds of disasters. The banks and the financial institutions were responsible for what took place in 2008. And now this is a health catastrophe, a health disaster. In order to get the economy right, we've got to take care of the health needs. But one of the things we should know and we should understand, you can't take care of the people on Wall Street and forget about the people on Main Street. And when we allowed... Uh, the big bailout to take place, we did not get anything in return for the people who got harmed uh, with these bad mortgages that they had been solicited into uh, by the banks. So we've got to take care of the people first and not just consider the bailouts for the big boys. Now, you know, uh, Representative Waters, like I know, that there are some people in our community for sure who think that this is a hoax, who are saying that this isn't real, who even though they've been instructed to be inside, they're still hanging out outside. What are you saying to those people who just don't believe that the coronavirus uh, is real right now? Well, uh, we're trying to get a message out. 
uh, that people are not to believe a lot of this stuff that's being put up on the Internet. Try and listen to the experts. We have your county health departments. You have the CDC. You have the NIH. You have the experts that are on television and panels. Try and pay attention to the experts. And uh, what are you going to wait for? Are you going to wait till some member of your family gets sick and dies? Or are you going to do everything that you can to protect yourself? and protect your family, and protect your community. You're already hearing about the deaths in other countries, in other states. They're coming to the United States. It's going to happen. You see what happened up in Seattle, Washington, with that nursing home, and the people who were dying and who died from that? I mean, enough is enough. You should have seen enough by now to know that it's real. We'll just keep telling the story. We'll just keep trying to convince. We will just keep doing everything that we can to have people understand this is no hoax. It's real. And on that note, what can people do? There are a lot of people who are home right now, who are listening, who are fired up. What can they do to support the work that you're doing? The first thing they need to do is make sure that they understand how to protect themselves. And that is washing your hands often. When you cough, cough into a handkerchief or tissue or your sleeve and not let sneezes and coughing go out into the atmosphere. Recognize what the symptoms are. The symptoms including headaches, respiratory difficulties, fever, all of that. So take care of yourself. Take care of your family. Uh, Make sure that everybody in the family understands how they're to protect themselves. On my plan, if you like my plan, get on the Internet and blast it, email it out, uh, get on all of the social media platforms, support it, call your elected officials, keep helping me to try and get. My plan is probably the most progressive. It is the most visionary. It is stepping outside of the box. It is what I call America's step up to the plate for the least of these in ways that we have never really done before. And so that's what I would ask people to do and help your senior citizens. If you live in an apartment complex and you're going out to buy some food, you got to get your food, knock on the door, ask the senior if they need some food. They tell you, go to the store, get their food. You don't have to go in, just set it at the door and you can get the money later or they can put it under the door. There's so many ways to work with this, but try and give a hand to senior citizens. There we go. Now, there are a lot of people I want to ask you because you've been in Congress for long enough to see sort of trends come and go. There's some people when we tell them to call Congress, they think that the calls don't really matter or that the emails don't matter, that the faxes don't matter. Can you just tell us, does it matter when people call Congress? It really does. It really does matter. And the amazing thing about it is people who need us the most don't call. And people, I'm representing a district, for example, in the greater Los Angeles area. I get calls from Idaho. I get calls from Massachusetts. I get calls from Illinois. People who think they can call you because they believe you'll do something or they like what you do or they don't like what you do, they call us or they write us. For example, in my district, I had a little business that went out of business and they had a little going away event uh, for this business that's been on this corner for I think 38 years. It's a art chili dog place. And so I went by to join with the community in the farewell to them. And I learned that they didn't know 
what was in the systems that could have helped them. They didn't know about women and minority programs. They didn't know about the SBA. They didn't call anybody. They didn't do anything except, you know, get in a position where they couldn't pay their bills. And now they're closing down. And that's always amazing to me that the people who need us the most don't call. Yes, calls matter. Yes, letters matter. Yes, emails matter. Yes, all of this matter. And members pay attention to it. And they know from their staff how many calls they got in on any given day, how many are favorable, how many are unfavorable. We keep up with that stuff. Uh, Well, Representative Waters, is there anything that you want people to know that we've not talked about as we close out? No, absolutely. You've covered a lot of ground here. And I'm so appreciative for you doing that because really you podcast and all you are talking drums. That's how we get the word out. And I'm particularly delighted that you get the word out to so many young people who may not be paying attention to what is known as the major media uh, because they've lost confidence in the major media. So thank you for helping to get the word out. You've covered a lot of ground today and I'm available to you anytime you want to do more. Thanks so much, and we will see you soon, and we will be rooting on uh, the passage of this third bill. Tell everybody to get behind my plan. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else, and we'll see you next week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.